and happy Valentine's Day. All right, all right, come on here, all right. Uh, I thought you guys were waiting. Uh, happy Valentine's Day or something. Uh, no, thank you for joining us. I hope you guys join us afterwards for uh, my daughter Scarlett's first birthday party in the fellowship over here. Uh, she actually wasn't born on Valentine's Day, so Scarlett and Valentine have nothing to do with each other, all right? Uh, she was actually born uh, January 28th, but I hope you can uh, join us afterwards, immediately following, and hang out for a little while. Even if you're a visitor and you're like, dude, I don't know Scarlett, I don't know, just come hang out and uh, fellowship with us. That's really what it's more about, is just fellowship around Christ. That's what her name means, Scarlett Grace. Uh, though your sins be as crimson, yet they shall be white as snow, right? Um, and you can just go on and on with the gospel being a part of her name from Isaiah 118. It's just built into her. So uh, we pray that that unfolds throughout the rest of her life. I don't have a special Valentine's Day sermon for you. Um, That'll be after, all right? So your Valentine's Day sermon is really the gospel, the word of God. We will continue in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 through 7. And we move, the title of my sermon is Weak Saints and a Strong Savior. Uh, weak Saints and a Strong Savior. We move into the qualifications of a pastor. This is actually, I think, my first time teaching on the actual, this passage alone as the qualifications for Pastor Wes and Nick Tanaka have both preached on this within the past three years, maybe more. Uh, and so I, I very much, especially with the life of our church, as we pray about, um, and I'll talk more about this in a month, moving towards being elder-led or appointing other pastors uh, or even the possibility one day of bringing on a, another staff pastor. This is going to be very relevant again in the life of our church. And actually, it will be the church, you guys, you folks, my brothers and sisters in the Lord, who will appoint and affirm that pastor. And so... Take good notes, because <laughs> this is for you. So, Wes, when he preached, he gave an excellent illustration, uh, which is worth repeating, the perfect pastor. You ever wondered what makes a perfect pastor? If you had to put in your mind categories, well, let's see this description of a perfect pastor and see if that matches what you have in mind. The, the perfect pastor preaches exactly 10 minutes. I can tell you that I will be an imperfect pastor already. <laughs> he condemns sin roundly but never hurts anyone's feelings. He works from 8 a.m. until midnight and also is the church janitor. The perfect pastor makes $40 a week, wears good clothes, drives a good car, buys good books, and donates $30 a week to the church. He is 29 years old. I got one. And has 40 years of experience. Okay, never mind. The perfect pastor has a burning desire to work with teenagers, and he spends most of his time with senior citizens. He smiles all the time with a straight face because he has a sense of humor that keeps him seriously dedicated to his church. 
He makes 15 home visits a day and is always in his office to be helpful when needed. The perfect pastor always has time for church council and all of his committee meetings. He never misses the meetings of any church organization and is always busy evangelizing the unchurched. The perfect pastor is always the next church over. What do you think? Does that sum it up? Is that about right? Is that what we expect of our pastors? Uh, I think in some ways it hits it right on the head. But let me say that Kahloe Baptist Church, I commend you guys. You are to be commended. So for all of the uh, woes that come with a church that is often seeking and pursuing pastors, I must say that by God's grace and for his glory, you have not necessarily followed that pattern normally of, uh, okay, we need a, a, an older man with prior experience, with, you know, 40 years of experience and 29 years old, and he has to have at least a doctorate, all right, at least a PhD, okay? And before we choose him, you are to be commended, brothers and sisters, because the fact that I'm standing up here and speaking to you is a sign that you have not followed conventional wisdom in pursuing a pastor if you're new here, my list of uh, my resume of experiences is very long uh, for pastoral ministry. I've arrested maybe 2% of Kahului. Um, maybe two, might be more, maybe less. Okay, I've definitely ticketed about 5% of Kahului, maybe more, maybe less. Um, but as pertains to pastoral ministry, my years of senior pastor experience add up to goose egg, all right? Um, I don't have my master's. I have my undergrad and bachelor, bachelor, uh, pastoral studies in theology. And by God's grace or your foolishness, I'm here. <laughs> but the Lord has been working, amen? amen? He works through our weaknesses, and he is shown to be strong, weak saints and a strong savior is what we're about. It's ultimately the church, the local church, that will affirm and appoint a pastor. Notice those words, affirm and appoint a pastor. It is not a church that calls a pastor. That, is, that belongs to one person and one person alone, God. It's up to the church to affirm and appoint those who have been called by God to ministry. And so the question always comes, Will we look with the tastes and preferences of Scripture, or will we be determining that based on other criteria? So my hope is to continue, as there are many of you who are new here, many, many who are new, my hope is to continue to craft in all of our minds biblical categories for what a pastor should look like and be like. On the other side, while all of you have a role in affirming and appointing a pastor, there are some of you here, some of you, who may feel like God is calling you or are sensing a call to ministry to be a pastor one day. For you, this is, I hope, to be a time that defines or maybe clarifies some of what that calling would entail and something for you to aim towards as you develop your gifts and calling from God. There are many, many faithful and godly men who have existed in the history of the church who are not pastors. And there's nothing wrong with that. God had a different gift, a different design, a different calling for them. 
So just because you're godly and faithful also doesn't mean you are fit to be a overseer or a pastor. You may be fit for something else. But for those who do, those who do sense that calling, I pray that this helps your aim and your focus and your mission. Now, the church in Ephesus was clearly struggling with whom they appointed as pastors. They had two of them that Paul says made a shipwreck of their faith, Alexander and Hymenaeus, 1 Timothy chapter 1. They were also struggling with their teachers who were leading them to speculations and endless genealogies and all these things that were making the body there more divisive than loving. So I want you to see who we choose to appoint as a pastor or overseer has drastic implications for your life and ministry here. It's very important. These aren't pie-in-the-sky theology as if this, this passage is only for seminary students. This is actually for all of us, everybody. And so, because this church was having a hard time with it, Paul writes to Timothy with a description of a type of man they should look for when they choose a pastor. Now, why is this important for you? I've alluded to some of these. Let me give you five reasons this is important for everybody to consider. Number one, because you're going to be responsible for affirming this person as pastor. I don't get to make other pastors, all right? I don't appoint them like, okay, you, not you. You, not you, right? I don't, I don't do that. That authority is vested in the body of Christ. I may make suggestions. I may be like, hey, I think he looks pretty good to me. But at the end of the day, you will be the one who affirms it by a vote led by the Holy Spirit. Number two, you will be expected to follow and submit to their teaching. That's kind of important. So who you affirm and who you appoint, you will be expected to follow and submit to their teaching. Number three, you should want to imitate their manner of doctrine and life. You should want to imitate this man, and it is a man, so I'm just going to go ahead and put that out there. We do not believe that it is biblical to affirm or appoint females as pastors in not only our church, but in any church, such that those who do are being disobedient to the scriptures. Now, if you're just joining us for the first time, you're like, whoa, how can he make a statement like that? Last week's sermon was all about that, all right? So go to our website, kahaluibaptist.org. It should be like right on the homepage. The last week's sermon, you can click 1 Timothy chapter 2. 11 through 15, and check out why I said that, about an hour's worth of material why. But number three, you should want to imitate their manner of doctrine and life. Not just their teaching, but their life. Be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. So their doctrine and their life. Number four, whether you're called to pastor or not, beloved. Whether you are like, man, this isn't for me. I should, why did I come this Sunday? I should have checked out, right? No. Whether you are called to pastor or not, this list of traits, these character traits are expected of all believers. All believers. D.A. Carson said this, the most remarkable thing about this list is that it is unremarkable. It's a very unremarkable list. These are common things that should be characteristic of all followers of Christ in time. So, whether men or women, senior citizens or teenagers, let this 
character traits be a, if you will, an examination, a mirror to look at where do I need to grow? Where am I weak in? And I think you'll find that no man, myself included, no man and no woman perfectly will match these character traits perfectly. We are all weak saints in need of a strong Savior. And so if any man hopes to even begin to fulfill this, their only hope will be a grasp of the gospel, a grasp that they are abiding in Christ, that they are a sinner in need of Christ and in need of forgiveness, and that time and time again these men will come back to the cross. That they'll be like Paul, that I am a chief sinner. You know what pastor means? It should mean chief repenter. I lead by seeing and having my heart laid open bare week after week. Because if I'm in the scriptures and it's convicting me, then week after week I will be coming to the cross in need of repentance more than anybody else. It's a list of traits for all believers, weak saints in need of a strong Savior. So let's, let's uh, dig into it and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would show yourself strong and mighty this morning. I pray that nobody would leave here and say, wow, Pastor Randy's got it all together, but that they would leave here and see the majestic glory of Christ towards sinners in grace. So, Lord, would you help us now uh, by your spirit to become what you would have us to become, all of us likewise. And, Lord, as you lead our church one day to appoint other elders or pastors in your church, then I pray that you would also guide us, make our way straight, and would your word be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, so we may do what is only pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, number one. A divinely placed desire. A divinely placed desire. That's what's first. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, or if anyone desires the office of an overseer, that word, I like to tell people, is actually not our typical word for pastor. Our word for pastor comes from the book of Ephesians chapter 4, shepherd teacher or pastor teacher. That title is only used one time in the New Testament. That's it, one time. The other titles for what I do up here are actually not pastor. They're this word, overseer. That's where we get our English word for bishop. And the other most common one is elder. Elder. So you could rightfully so be like, hey, what's up, Bishop Randy? What's up? And I say, what's up, dude? How's it going, right? Or you could say, you could call me an elder if you wanted to. Or you could just call me Randy. That works too, all right? Uh, I respond to all of these. But the most common New Testament title is actually elder, followed by overseer, followed by pastor. All of them just delineating various functions of what I do. I oversee, I govern, I'm an elder, that's another, I'm cooperating with others who are supposedly wise and doing things according to God's standards, and then I also pastor, I shepherd, I'm like a shepherd and you are like sheep, and we do all of these things. They're all descriptive for what I do. And he says, if anyone desires this office, he desires a noble task. It's a good 
work. So that's first. You must have a divinely placed desire, an internal call, this internal pressing, a passion, a burden that manifests itself in sacrificial service to Christ's people, that displays itself in a desire to do the work. Now, those who have this desire in them do not wait until they have the office to do the work. That makes sense? Not like, okay, I have this desire, but I'm not going to do it until you call me pastor. No, those who have this internal call are just doing it however they can already. Within the constraints of what their jobs, what their family lives allow, they're already serving. They have their hands to the plow because this is something God has placed in them to do. So that's one of the first things you look for, beloved. Whenever you're looking, man, is this person called by God? Do we want to affirm them as pastor? That's what you look for. Look for people who are already serving. Are they already pouring out their lives? They're already loving on the flock and praying for people and encouraging people and teaching the word. They're not waiting. They're busy. They're faithful already. What you don't want is that person who waits for the title before they decide to serve. This desire becomes so intrinsic, it's almost like your desire to eat. All right? It's almost like your, your desire. I mean, how many of you have to be told, hey, eat? Hey, I want you to eat. We really need help eating this food after. All right? Would you just help me eat? No, we don't do that, right? Because it's just, it's intrinsic in us, this desire that is born that says, oh, I'm hungry. How much longer pastor going to go? I want to eat, right? It's already there. And that's exactly similar to what you're looking for in a pastor. He also says it's a good work. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, they desire a good work. The emphasis is on good and work, all right? It's a good thing, not a bad thing. I have so many people, and so if you said this before, don't feel convicted or, or anything like that, but so many people were like, man, pastor, being a pastor must be pretty easy. I mean, how hard is it? You talk for an hour on Sunday, what else do you do during the week, right? Must be nice. Well, it is. It actually is a great deal. It really is. So I'm not going to tell you it's not. It really, truly is wonderful. I get to work for God. And I get to work for God's people. It is truly one of the greatest joys and delights of my life. However, you're like, oh yeah, there is a however, yep. However, I serve not as a master, but as a manager. I'm a steward. I'm overseeing the master's most prized possession, his blood-bought bride of Christ, the one that he has entrusted to me, and he has said, I'm going to come back one day, and I'm going to give an account. Actually, rather, you're going to give an account of how you've cared for my people. There's no pressure at all or anything like that, all right? All right, no pressure at all. Just tell me this. If you had two friends who had a car, one of them had this really junk, beat-up, dented-in car that was just, man, he didn't care. Or you had a friend who's got this brand-new, I don't know, your car of choice, Camaro, convertible, spotless. He's meticulous about it. And you had to borrow one of their cars. Whose would you feel more comfortable driving? Now, I know everybody knows which one you'd want to drive. You know, like, dude, I'd want to drive. But whose would you feel more comfortable driving? 
I'm going to feel more comfortable driving the beat up car because if I'm driving a car, don't wreck, don't hit anything. Oh, please don't hit me. Please don't, right? Because they're going to come back and I'm going to be responsible for answering how I took care of this car and what happened to it. Beloved, as the body of Christ, he has laid his life down for you. He calls you his inheritance. Do you realize God calls you his inheritance? That he is looking forward to the day that he gets to be with his people? That the book of Zechariah says, he, the Lord God sings over his people. He sings over you with joy. He is your joyful Savior. He is anticipating the, the day that he sees us face to face as much as the day that we see him face to face. And that is entrusted to care, to the care of his pastors. He is a mighty, mighty steward indeed. So a divinely placed desire for the work. It is a good work. Number two, a distinctively Christ-like character. Number two, so they have to have a divinely placed desire. Number two, they need a distinctively Christ-like character. He opens it up, verse 2, that he must be, therefore, above reproach. Or some of your Bibles might say blameless. He must be above reproach or blameless. That he would live in a way that others would not think badly of the faith or the church. Now, this does not mean that we're looking for Ned Flanders. All right? This does not mean we're looking for a Ned Flanders type of personality. Well, hi, diddly oh, good neighbor. Praise God. God bless you. God's peace be with you. Amen. Well, yeah, we're not looking for that. What it simply means is that this guy, by and large, and he is placed before the body, and when he is appointed, that nobody would be like, What? You're going to let that guy be a pastor, right? That's, that's what it means. We're not looking for somebody who would elicit that response from anybody, right? He must be blameless or above reproach. This is one because of the public nature of this office that others would look and see, wow, these people are different people and their leaders are the same. Number two, the husband of one wife. So it must be blameless and above reproach and the husband of one wife. A lot of things come up here. This is actually controversial. Uh, so does this mean that a pastor cannot be previously divorced? Or can he be previously divorced? What about single people? Does a pastor need to be married? All these questions and more. This might, you might think, well, the husband of one wife, does that mean that those who have two wives? Are disqualified? Is he talking about polygamy here? I would say that the idea of polygamy is not what's actually being addressed here. I would think the idea would be of sexual purity in the congregation. So when a man been born again, let's talk about divorce. This is going to answer the divorce question. Can he be divorced? When a man is born again, he truly is a new creature. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And very little, beloved, is counted against anybody before their conversion. For example, Paul the Apostle, right? The great persecutor of the church, uh, dragging and separating men and women in prison and helping stone Stephen. I mean, all these things, you could lay, these charges you could lay on the Apostle Paul. But that was all before he was a believer. As a new believer, all that's been wiped away clean. 
So, can a man be a pastor who's been divorced? Well, if that was before his conversion, I would say very well, potentially, yeah. I mean, that wouldn't be the only factor I'm looking at, but I wouldn't count it against him on the basis of this passage. What about after conversion? Let's say a man's a Christian, and after he was a believer, he was divorced and remarried or whatever. Then again, I would take the same thing and say, it depends. It all depends, case by case. Let's see what, what led to the marriage, what led to the divorce, what led to the problems. How have you responded to them since that time? How have you grown? What was your part in them? You say, wow, that's very personal. I'd say, my life is an open book, all right? It's supposed to be. Look at the rest of these things. These all get very personal. How do you test for these things? Our lives are meant to be read and lived before all. So yeah, it's going to get really personal and a lot more personal than that before we're done with it. But I would, I would want to see, what is this man's character after the divorce? What led to it? For instance, I had a friend in Bible college, and his wife abandoned him. So his wife, in this case, sinned and left, and she just totally had been not interested in reconciliation, not interested in counseling, not interested in trying to work through anything. He went to work one day, he came home, and her bags were packed, and she was gone, and she never came back. Is that guy disqualified from the ministry? Some people would say on the basis of this text, yes. I would say no, not necessarily. We talked to him. We, we asked, hey, what, what, what happened? Where did it come from? How are you responding? What is your state towards her now? All these different things. And it was a long, hard process. But nobody, including my other pastors at the time, would have said that he's disqualified alone for those reasons alone. Does that make sense? You tracking with me? So we would say case-by-case case, uh, basis. There's a lot of other factors that could go into that. How about a single man? Can a single man be a pastor? This has a husband of one wife, or is this only for married men? If this meant that you had to have a spouse to be a pastor, that would disqualify the head of the church himself, Jesus, all right? Uh, and it would also disqualify the one who's writing this letter, Paul the Apostle, who in 1 Corinthians 7 actually commended singleness and said, I wish you would be single like I'm single, all right? So Paul would be, I don't think that's what he's saying. So what is he saying? And if he's not saying this and he's not saying that, what exactly is he saying? The literal translation of husband of one wife is literally a one-woman man. What it means is if he is married, then his eyes are only for his wife. Remember chapter 2, these women coming into the service decked out in like million-dollar dresses of the day and their hair just embroidered and all these things with stuff and all the eyes were directed at the women. And there's a lot of sexual immorality happening in the church. And I think what Paul is saying is your pastors need to have eyes for their wife alone. These aren't men who are known to be flirtatious. They're not known to be always kind of cruising with the ladies. These are men that have, they're one-woman men. They have eyes for their wife and their wife alone. And I wouldn't say that this passage prohibits single people any more than, than verse 4 prohibits childless families. He also says, a husband of one wife, and he must keep his children in all submissiveness with dignity. 
So are we to deduce from that passage that a pastor not only has to be married, but has to have children? I'd say, no, no, no. His point is if you have a wife, she's your wife, and you're not checking out all these other ladies. If you have children, then they are submissive, and you are loving them and caring for them as a father should. Verse 2, sober-minded. This is similar to verse 3 in some ways with self, or sorry, with not addicted to wine. They not be a drunkard. But it's also more encompassing than that. Are we to think that the only addiction a pastor is not allowed to have is wine? Such that he can't have wine, but he can have some Maui Wowie. Right? Or he can't have wine, but he can have a little bit of uh, some other narcotic, all right, that is inhibiting his brain. No. This extends to all of it. Or let's get a little bit more close to home, pastor. Can a pastor be enslaved to coffee? Some people are. This is all-encompassing. He is to be sober-minded as a whole. He's not a man who is owned by his appetites, but rather who owns his appetites by the power of the Spirit. Now, surely an excess of wine is wrong, but I would say an excess of anything is wrong, whether it be illegal drug use or food. Take it all across the spectrum. There's so many pastors, and our churches are just, man, we have, I'm trying to think how to say this gently, right? There's no way to say it gently. America has ignored the command for self-control for pastors, such that we've honed in on the wine. Oh, he drinks or he doesn't drink, while this brother over here is shoving his faith with chicken wings. Amen, right? Is this not true? And we would say the scriptures are more all-encompassing than that. He is not to be a man who is owned by his appetites, but yet he expresses self-control in all manners of life. He is sober-minded with all things. He is a man who will respond like Jesus in a moment of temptation. Man lives not by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Father. Man lives not by wine alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Father. Man lives not by coffee alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. He is to be sober-minded. He is to be self-controlled. Now you're like, wait a minute, what is this? This word has more of the idea of a sound mind. If you remember Mark chapter 5, Jesus goes and he heals a demoniac. And all the people were in awe. They were like, wow. Because this man was back in his mind. He, was a, he had a sound mind again. This is the same word, this idea of having a sober mind or sound thinking. This person is in touch with reality. They, they make overall good judgment calls. They have sound decision making. This person knows himself well, knows his strengths and his weaknesses, and he is also able to discern accurately situations in which he finds himself. So, for example, let's say you say, Pastor, what is your biggest weakness? And let's say I'm like, hmm, man, I just, actually, let's go, what's your biggest strength? And you say, wow, I think my biggest strength is that I'm just really patient. Just really patient. And let's say I'm actually really struggling with being impatient, all right? Let's say I'm like uh, John Doe beeps a lot. Like as soon as somebody cuts me off, I'm not laying on the horn, right? And let's say that everybody knows that that's Pastor Randy. And I'm like, I'm just really patient. 
<laughs> you'd be like, everybody's going to say, whoa, that guy is clueless, right? This is not what it is. What it is is when I'm like, what's your biggest weakness? I'm impatient. And you say, yeah, I can see that. Yeah, I can see that. What's your biggest strength? Oh, uh, I love people. And you say, yeah, I can see that. Yeah. I'm in touch with reality. I know myself and I know others. And you'd say, yeah, that's good. Remember, this is true for you, right? These aren't just character traits for me. These are true for you. Are you in touch with reality? Do you see things as they really are? A sound mind, self-controlled. Next, respectable. Verse 2, respectable. This is somebody whose main aim in life isn't to offend the most people possible, all right? This person's goal is not to step on as many toes as possible. They are or rather, unnecessarily. They are overall respectable people. This is hard because our culture doesn't value this type of behavior. Our culture actually champions those who seem to offend the most. I won't name any names or any cultural icons right now, like Donald Trump or anything like that. But I will say, our culture seems to value this. Another case in point would be like a movie that recently was released titled Deadpool. It just finds its, uh, this Marvel X-Men, the anti-hero that just finds the locus of its driving selling point as being offensive. To be crude, crass. And this man, as a pastor, is not to be somebody whose main aim is to offend as many people unnecessarily as possible. This isn't a man who demands his rights everywhere he goes, but rather he uses his rights to serve others. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 32 and 33, Paul says, Give no offense, give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. This is somebody who uses his rights to serve others and doesn't offend unnecessarily. Next, he's hospitable. He's hospitable. Now, does this mean that your pastor is to be a walking Pinterest board? Right? He's just like, man, that dude can decorate and throw some parties. And did you see the little cupcakes he made? That was genius. I just felt so. Right? No, this is not saying your pastor needs to be a walking Pinterest board. It's also not saying that your pastor needs to uh, be just having people over all the time and, and loving on church members, although that is part of it. The main emphasis here for pastors and for you is that we be hospitable or welcoming to strangers. When the Bible speaks of hospitality, we generally think of southern hospitality, right? Like, bless your heart. God bless you. You just come on over and eat all my food. It's just great, right? We normally think of southern hospitality. That's what I grew up around, all right? And it's awesome, all right? It's awesome, by the way. So if you get to go to Georgia, go check it out. Southern hospitality, they'll love you and they'll take care of you down there, okay? But that's not what it has in mind. It has in mind generally friendliness, kindness, welcoming to strangers. This is hard. This is hard because I have all sorts of excuses not to do this, all right? What if I'm an introvert? What if I'm an introvert? I just don't like to talk to people. I'm kind of like, I get really tired when I talk to lots of new people, and I'm just an introvert. So do, don't I get an exception? No, no. I'm to work hard at loving people. Or what if I'm just really awkward? 
All right, what if I'm awkward around new people? Anybody like that? You're just awkward around new people? See, you just don't even want to raise your hand because it would be so awkward. That's why, right? So I know, I know some of you are awkward around new people, okay? Do I get an exception? No, 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 no. None of it matters. We're to be people who work hard at loving others, at opening our home, at showing kindness to the stranger. Be people ultimately who are like Christ. Next, not a drunkard. I kind of covered this one. His best friends are not Jose Cuervo or Jack Daniels. All right? He doesn't see them before he goes to bed or when he wakes up. All right? That's just, he's not a drunkard. Next one, not a violent. He's not violent, but gentle. He's not quarrelsome. Verse 3, not violent, but gentle. He's not quarrelsome. These go together, actually. These three go together. Why is this important, that he not be violent and not quarrelsome, but gentle? We all know somebody like this. You know people who have really good doctrine, but they just lack a lot of love? You know anybody like that? They're just such a smart brain, man. They just have everything up there, but yet they're just quarrelsome, man. They're just, they're soft on the inside, but they're like a Brillo pad. They're like a sponge. There's that rough outside that just rubs other people wrong all the time. He says that's not the person you're looking for to shepherd the sheep. They're to be gentle. They're not people who just tell it like it is characteristically. Rather, they speak the truth in love and consider the frame of others. Our aim should be gentleness, not violence. Now, that is to say that while gentleness is the aim, I want to give a qualifier here. It doesn't mean he's gentle all the time with everyone. Think about that. It doesn't mean he's gentle all the time with everyone. It means like a shepherd, like a shepherd, he doesn't seek out conflict. He doesn't seek it out. But he doesn't run when the wolves come either. You tracking with me? He doesn't seek out fights, but when a bear or a wolf like King David of old or a lion threatens the flock, the gentle shepherd turns into a mighty warrior, even willing, if need be, to lay down his very life for the flock, just like the chief shepherd did. So they don't seek out conflict, but they don't run from it either. When it comes, they meet it and they address it accordingly. Not a lover of money. Ooh, man, my pastor brothers have failed at this, all right? If there is one area that is being hammered by our opponents, it is that pastors have loved money, or rather so-called bad pastors have loved money. And that's no different from today than it was in Paul's day, which is why he writes about this. That we not be greedy for gain, that we not be lovers of money. Now, this doesn't mean that I can't have nice things or have money. It means that I don't love money. It means that a pastor is known for being generous, for holding things with an open hand, that he uses money and is kingdom-oriented for the glory of God. He must not be a recent convert, verse 6. Why can't he be a recent convert? He gives a reason, because he may become puffed up and fall into a snare of the devil. In other words, there should be an established pattern of Christ-like character in this brother. You remember the parable of the soils? 
and the sower. A sower went forth to sow, and one seed fell on stony ground. You remember what happened to that seed? It sprang up immediately. There was a flower, and it showed great promise. But then it says, as fast as it sprang up, it withered away when the sun came out. The cares of the world. Why? Because it lacked root. He says, brothers, don't choose somebody like that to be your pastor. Yeah, man, new converts will show lots of energy, lots of excitement, lots of thrills. And you're like, yeah, this is awesome. Let's make that guy our pastor. And he says, no, 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 no. Let them be tested. Let them bear fruit. Let their roots sink down a little bit. Don't put the pressure on them before it's time because they may break. They may become puffed up. And last one, verse 7 of this point. They must be thought of well by outsiders. They must be thought of well by outsiders. Why? Again, so they don't fall into disgrace and a snare of the devil. Now, this doesn't mean that they won't be liked, that they'll be liked by everybody. This doesn't mean that everybody's going to like them, but it does mean they will be respected by all. That even people who don't like them, like, man, I just don't like that guy, but I don't like him because I can't find a reason not to like him. All right? That's what it's like, all right? There's, it's not that everybody will like them, but that they will be respected by all people, that they'll, be, they'll have a solid character, that they practice what they preach. So they must have a distinct Christ-like character. Number three, a dignified and ordered home life. They must have a dignified and ordered home life. Verse four, he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. It's possible and easy to keep your children submissive. True or false? False. Depends. It's possible and easy to keep your children submissive and have zero dignity while you're doing it. You can be harsh. You can just beat them. You beat your child, they'll submit. I promise. It's true. You're like, did he just say that? No, if you beat somebody, generally they submit, but you have zero dignity in doing it. Zero dignity. So the challenge here is qualified. He must keep his his children with all submissiveness with dignity. That's a lot harder. Okay, that's that's a little bit harder now to do it and be dignified, respectable in the process. It's a little bit harder. Anybody can be harsh. Anybody can be overbearing. Anybody can yell at people all the time. But that's not dignified. These men will lead their homes through love and patience, not anger and power. They'll keep their children with submissiveness, with dignity. They will love them. They'll shepherd them. They'll care for them. They'll consider their weaknesses. They'll bear with them. They'll help them. They'll lead them in Christlikeness. It's also possible to be at the other end of this spectrum where you're so hands-off that your children are just in rampant disobedience. They're, they're just in wanton wickedness. And everybody knows it. There's a reason why pastor's kids have the worst, this kind of bad reputation, all right? And I would say that's not a good thing. And so, neither are they to be overbearing, but they're also not to be hands-off. Why is this? Because God is not interested... He's not enlisting people to care for his family at this expense of their own. 
Catching that? He's not interested in having people care for his family at the expense of their own, which means before I'm Pastor Randy at church, I'm Pastor Dad at home. And that has to stay my primary flock. My first church member is my wife. She's my first church member. My second one, his name's Titus. The third, her name's Scarlett. The fourth, her name is, his name is, we don't know yet, Baby Polly. But pastors are never to sacrifice their homes on the altar of ministry. Never. And neither are you, beloved. Neither are you. Never to sacrifice your homes on the altar of ministry. That doesn't just happen to pastors. It happens to all sorts of people. In essence, what God says is, if you can't handle your family, don't touch mine. (laughs) You can't handle your family, don't touch mine. And last one, number four, he must have a discernible, distinguished ability to teach. That's it, a discerning or a distinguished ability to teach. He must be able to teach. This is actually the only skill set a pastor is required to have. They don't have to have a degree in administration. They don't have to have their degree in public speaking. They don't have to be, uh, you know, 20 years of whatever. The only skill set that you need to have is that you be able to teach. It's the only necessity. And it's actually one of the few job descriptions I have that's actually concrete. What do I do as a new pastor? I don't know. Pray and you teach. All right, cool. I got it, right? So figure it out. Figure out the rest of it by the power of the Spirit. But one of the things we do is we teach. You must be able to teach. This is what separates pastors and deacons. Do you know that? Do you know the only difference between a pastor and a deacon? The character traits are the exact same. So it's not like, oh, I'm some like way better plain than these other guys. No, 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 no. There's only one difference is I have to be able to teach. That's it. It's the only character trait that separates them, or skill set that separates them. It also is true that not every elder or not every pastor has to preach all the time like what I'm doing. They just have to be able to teach, not saying that they're the ones teaching all the time, or even the main ones. Some pastors, I have some good friends who are godly guys, if I stick them up here, you just, they're just, they, they turn off. They turn into, they go blank. They can't stalk. They, they stutter. They stammer. They do all these other things that I do a lot, all right? But they just don't excel at this type of venue. You get them one-on-one in counseling, though, and man, they're like mighty lions. They just war, and they're just on it, and they dissect the word, and they bring the heat, and they're just faithful in the scriptures. There are different areas of teachings, and we need all of them. They must be able to teach. And a lot more could be said about all these things. I just want to give you a few brief practical applications for you to take home with. Number one, pray for these types of men to be developed and raised up in our church. Pray. Do that. Pray for me. Because I haven't arrived yet. Like I said, I am far from perfection by any means in this list. I have a feeling you are too. So pray for these types of men, and I'll pray for you to be developed in this church as they already are. Number two, encourage them when you see them. If you see somebody who's showing signs or gifts of ministry, encourage those brothers. Love on them. Help them. Let them know, man, I've just been so encouraged by your teaching. I've been so encouraged by your patience. I've been so encouraged. Whatever it is they do, encourage them. Number three, 
pray about whether God is moving in you a desire for this work. Men, is God calling you? Is he moving you to do this work? Number four, examine your life. Where in this list do you need to grow? What will you do this week or today even to make headway in this? Examine your life. This goes for all of you, right? Not just for those who are feeling called. All of you. Did, you, did something in here convict you? What was it and what will you do this week to grow in it? Number six. Recognize and understand that as we look for this and other men, that nobody will ever meet all of these criteria perfectly. No man is ever going to be out from underneath the curse of Genesis chapter 3. And no woman either. Amen? Nobody will ever be out from underneath that. So be gracious with one another and encourage one another in their weaknesses. And last, let's pray together and close that when the time comes, when the time comes, we will together affirm and appoint several perfect pastors. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it truly does enlighten our path and challenge us and convict us. I pray, Father, that all of us in here this morning would leave here with a desire, a pressing desire to walk in the gospel and that we would live lives that are blameless and above reproach before the world. And Lord, may you raise up, may you raise up mighty men and women in our church who are able to teach your word and who love the body and love the gospel. And may you get all the glory for it. In Jesus' name, amen.